Hello, 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 and welcome to Kicking and Streaming, the show where streaming originals and traditional cinema enter the ring for the ultimate showdown. I'm Bo. And I'm Chris. Are streaming originals the TV movies of the 21st century? Is cinema really different from movies? Is Netflix the future? These questions and more on... Kicking and Streaming. Kick, kicking and... You, you, need, you, need to say, you need to say it with me. No, I thought you... Okay, okay, hold on. Kicking and... Hold on. No, no. Okay. At the same time. Okay. Okay. One, two. Kicking and Streaming. Streaming. Okay. No. Here. No, okay. I'll, I'll count you in. Welcome, everyone, to episode five of Kicking and Streaming. Thanks, Chris. I am your main host, Chris, and my assistant host, Bo, is also here with us. Let's just let's just do that again. Bo, say hello to the nice people. Why, why don't we just take that from the top huh? again? We yeah, just uh, try that one more time. I think we got it. So uh, for episode five, we uh, <laughs> I uh, had the the immense honor of assigning Bo a film, a delightful film, a Netflix original known as Oakjaw by the visionary director Bong Joon Ho from. I believe, South Korea. Yeah. Oscar-winning director Bong Joon-ho. And uh, Okja made some waves when it hit the old small screen back when it launched in uh, 2017 on Netflix. Bo, listen, I'm curious to hear what you thought, but what do you say we we start out with, uh, for those at home who have not yet partaken of the splendor of Okja, why don't you fill us in? Okay, so Okja is... I think, I'm just going to go ahead and say this, you can stop me if I'm wrong, but I would say that this is the most divisive movie with the general public. This is the most divisive movie that we've covered on this show so far. The most divisive? I think so. I Just looking at my letterboxed profile, I'm looking at all the, the different critics and pals that I follow, and it's like every other, you know, four stars, five stars, two stars, it's all over the place. There's not a lot of, eh, it was okay. Yeah, I mean, and this this is this is an offbeat movie. This is kind of a strange melange of themes and so on. So the plot, yeah, Netflix original film. Uh, one of the more notorious, maybe the plot is about this company that has engineered these genetic super pigs. They call them, and these these super pigs are basically meant to be kind of more eco friendly easier and cheaper to maintain, to raise up, to fatten up for eating. And crucially, they're also much bigger, more meat on them. Essentially, they're, to me anyway, they reminded me of sort of like a big hippopotamus creature. And roughly that size, I would say. Yeah, super pig's basically just a hippo. Yeah, (laughs) it really is just sort of a, a hippo with floppy ears instead of hippo ears. Hippo ears can flop if they try hard enough. Okay, well, it opens, right, with this eccentric Tilda Swinton character. Lucy Mirando. Lucy Mirando, the head of this, of the Mirando Corporation. And she's giving a sort of board meeting pitch about these super pigs and how they're going to be raised. And there's this contest where they're going to have farmers from different farming traditions across the world raise up these pigs, each according to their own tradition, and they're going to see which farming method uh, works the best. And then we jump forward several years to South Korea, out in the the jungles of rural South Korea, 
We follow this little girl, Mija, who lives with her father, and they've been raising one of the, the super pigs, which now we've been calling the movie Okja, and several people call the pig Okja, but she seems to pronounce it something like Ohia or something. I just noticed that what she was saying was definitely not Okja. Are you Mandela affecting me, Bo? I'm not. <laughs> I swear she says Okja, but maybe that's just because that's just how my brain receives the information. I don't think she does. The like some of the English speaking characters call the the pig Okja whenever they do give it a name. But I, I think when she's yelling for it, you see Okja appear in the subtitles, but she's yelling something like Ohai or something. I maybe maybe it's I, like the, the Maybe uh, I'm maybe I'm crazy. But. Maybe she, she's putting the emphasis on a different syllable. She's saying uh Okja That could Okja! be like kinda like instead of like Okja it's Okja I th- I th- Listen, we, we we could be here all day, but uh, <laughs> we've got bigger fish to fry. The important here. thing is, the, imp- the important thing is that we've got a super pig called Okja that is being raised by this uh, adorable little girl and her father out in the the jungles of South Korea. And it turns out, right as we're we're tuning in, the time has come for the Mirando team to come check out all the pigs. And so they they show up and they investigate Oakjaw. And while they're looking over the animal and they seem um, impressed and so on, uh, Mija's father sort of calls her aside to tell her about he wants to tell her something. And they, they slip off while everybody's looking at the super pig. Turns out he's been fibbing to her. They aren't going to be able to keep the super pig as she thought. When she gets back to the house, the Mirando Corporation has taken her pig, and the pig is off to be analyzed and presumably slaughtered like all the super pigs the world round. And Mija does not take this lying down. She's very upset. And the rest of the movie is sort of her zany adventures as she goes through all sorts of trials in pursuit of Okja to to get back her super pig. And that is the movie in in a nutshell. It's a mighty big nutshell. Yeah. Um, and like I said, the, the tone of this movie is multifaceted. It's a part adventure movie, part sort of gruesome satire. It's got drama. It's got subtle and overt comedy. And this show has it all. A lot, a lot packed into this one. Yeah, yeah. It's a jack of all trades kind of movie. So, speaking of which, Bo, here's my question for you. I was I was looking over a review on Roger Ebert's website by a Mister Matt Zoller Seitz Seitz Seitz. I'm just going to say it's pronounced says. He reviewed the film, and at one point he points out exactly what you're saying, which is that it's kind of a tonal hodgepodge. It's, it's a, yeah, it's a satire, dark comedy. It's an action, an adventure, a touching story about friendship and whatnot. But in the review, he says that it balances it deftly. He said it was sweet, funny, scary, sad, and in the manner of all good science fiction movies, thought-provoking. So the first question I wanted to ask you about this, having seen it recently, what thoughts did this movie provoke from you? And do you think they were the thoughts Bong Joon-ho had in mind when he made the film? Yeah, so this this is the biggest question, right? And I find this interesting as well, because 
I remember just sort of, I didn't do a lot of reading on this film after the fact, but like I mentioned, I pulled up Letterboxd and I kind of scrolled through and saw how divisive it was Mm -hmm. among the critics and friends that I follow there. And what is apparent to anyone who knows anything about the film and that we haven't quite got into yet is there's an overt message about at least factory farming, at most the idea of eating animals at all. Mm-hmm. And that is reflected very poorly throughout the film. There's sort of this critique of, like I say, maybe maybe capitalism overall, but certainly just sort of ruthless factory farming, the double standard of thinking that these animals are cute and presenting the super pigs as these adorable creatures, but also they're just headed right for the slaughter and you know, several quips about how delicious they are and how that's the most important thing about them. But giving emphasis, I mean, Okja, we've talked about how Okja looks like a hippopotamus, but yeah, yeah. Okja is, you know, a, a big a big CG cartoon character, essentially, complete with, you know, lots of little facial expressions and movements and an alarming degree of intelligence. This is a very smart companion animal. You yeah. know, this isn't some big dumb ball of meat. <laughs> and so, yeah, uh, does it pull off all of these things deftly? You know, for me, I, I'm just going to say that Bong Joon-ho is clearly a, a slick and talented director who has just made a big splash with Parasite. But Chris, you and I talked about with Parasite that although both of us liked the film, mm-hmm. that we did have... I remember when we watched it, a few little quibbles with kind of the way in which the themes were presented and especially toward the end of the film, if you recall. Yeah, yeah. Not to get too far out of Oakjaw country, but yeah, like and because it, technically it's not that far out of Oakjaw country because I think I see where you're about to go with this. And I, I, I think I may agree with you that at least in Parasite, he presented a lot of interesting ideas and a lot of really interesting characters and a lot of really interesting conflicts. And the way it all came together at the end didn't really feel like, to me at least, it didn't really feel like the most perfect payoff of all the pieces that had been set up. Yeah, I agree with that. Although I say that it was a much more effective film than Oakjaw mm-hmm. and yeah. still an excellent movie. Just some of the, the quibbles that I had that I'm bringing up now as a way of talking about just the way that I feel that this movie gets its themes really sort of in a muddle for me. I mean, at times, the energy of this film, to me, is like, it, it's got the tenacity of, like, a Saturday Night Live sketch comedy. <laughs> the satire is, you know, very overt and open. The The subtlety is gone. And we've got Jake Gyllenhaal out there. Oh boy, uh, we got to come back. We got to circle back around to Jake Gyllenhaal. He needs a whole section. Yeah, we'll, we'll circle. We'll 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 put a pin on that <laughs> uh, in that in him. There's a lot going on there in the in the themes and the tonal shift. It's jumping back and forth. There are a couple of scenes that I feel are lifted like straight out of a Wes Anderson film. There are other parts where it's kind of a straight up adventure movie. Sometimes it seems like it's appealing to kids but then there's a fair number of f words in the film and it's got you know it's r rating or it's ma rating i'm not sure 
So I had I had a bit of trouble kind of figuring out where this film is. And, you know, the comedy was jumping into, into different sorts. The themes are all over the place. As I was saying with the letterbox, it was kind of this theme of against factory farming and uh-huh. against capitalism and all this. Like I read one reviewer who rated it pretty low and just said his whole review was like, geez, we get it already. <laughs> and... At times, I felt that too because this is this is a longer movie. Um, yeah. It stretches over two hours, and it's true. they do seem to just keep hammering home that theme. And I can I can empathize with that reviewer and him just saying like, "All right, like we're probably on board with you much earlier on. Nobody likes to see this little girl have her beloved animal friend pulled away and doomed for the slaughterhouse of this evil corporation." Right. And yet at the same time, other people were remarking about how confused they were because like, oh, but the family seems to to eat meat. She mentions like a chicken stew or something being her favorite. We see her fishing. And so it's kind of like, well, you know, maybe it's more nuanced. Maybe it really is just a, against factory farming and sort of this um, localized living off the earth kind of meat eating isn't being skewered. Or maybe she's part of the hypocrisy. Uh-huh. Um, it, it's a movie that's startlingly overt and yet still kind of has me personally going, I'm not sure I'm catching all the themes by the end of it. <laughs> you know, it's it's funny you mentioned that because there's actually – there are moments where Matt Zoller cites at RogerEbert.com. Uh, he talked a bit about how there are moments where it feels like the film might get a bit into how righteousness can lead to intolerance, specifically with the ALF, the Animal Liberation Front. Yeah. Because there's a moment in the film that, I mean, it's in, it's enjoyable and it's strange. And I love watching Paul Dano do just about anything that's weird. And there's plenty of that. Yeah, same with me. Yeah. I, he, I think he's fantastic. Yeah, he's an electrifying person to watch on screen. So to that extent, I have no complaints. But there, there's a moment in the film where the Animal Liberation Front, the ALF, led by Paul Dano and a, a cast of other characters like Lily Collins and Stephen Yeun and a few other big name-ish actors, they, they save Okja and Mija, but then they, they reveal that their plan isn't to fully free them, it is to equip Okja with a little camera on her ear so that they can record the atrocities that go on inside the factories. And so they ask for Mija's permission. She says no, but Stephen Yeun's character, who is translating from English to Korean for her, mistranslates to make it as if she said yes. And then much later in the film, that moment goes by so quick that I almost thought, like, wait, is his character an idiot? Or is he why, – why did he – I mean, you, you get – it's kind of implicit that he was just doing it on purpose. But the way that it's acted and paced and everything, you almost feel like, like the movie's gaslighting you. Like, wait, did I not just read that she did not want – Okja to go with them. Later, Stephen Yeun's character, his name is K. He admits to J, played by Paul Dano, the leader of the ALF, that he mistranslated, that the girl did not want them to take Okja. So then Paul Dano's character, J, he proceeds to beat the tar out of K and says that, you know, mistranslation is basically a grievous sin for their organization. And it, it's just, it's a, it's a weird, it's like, it's almost comedic. That's one of the moments that, to me, felt like it might have almost been in a Wes Anderson movie, this weird outburst of violence over uh, this this little moment that happens. And you almost get the impression that, man, these ALF guys are a little bit screwy as well. But the movie never really goes all in on that. It never really 
digs deep into how weird these ALF guys might be. They're pretty much noble heroes from beginning to end. Yeah, so it, it plays with them a little bit, right? Because it, it tries to skewer them. And to me, I felt a little bit like I'm fine with a movie having mixed themes or even not really defining its themes at all. Mm. It's it's more like, and I think that we've been, uh, you and I both almost said this, it's that I feel very strongly that Bong Joon-ho wants us to get certain things out of this film. That's the the tone and the message I'm receiving is that there's that this film is saying all sorts of things. And so that's why I'm so critical of whether that's actually working. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, this this Animal Liberation Front, they're sort of these kind of ridiculously righteous characters. Like they're asking consent for everything. You know, they're telling, even as they're pulling off this big heist and like they've got all this equipment and they're leading the police on this big chase. They're sort of apologizing the whole time to everybody and promising that they're only doing what they have to do. They're just sort of these peace-loving hippie guys. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, we get this startling moment where Paul, who is like the mildest of them all, suddenly beats up this guy. Yeah, yeah. And there were a couple moments with them that I feel were, again, on the on these tones, I feel like they, you know, they were, they were skewering this corporation. They were hitting hard against meat eating. But then every once in a while, it was like they would kind of try and throw like a little fist in the other direction and say like, well, we're kind of, you know, we're punching both ways here. But it wasn't enough to me. It was just little things like the moment with them beating up or the, the slightly ridiculous nature of the, the ALF. Mm-hmm. Or like the one character, I forget his name, one of the ALF lackeys who doesn't eat ah. like at all because he's trying to reduce his eco footprint, <laughs> something like that. It's not even about not eating meat. He's just trying not to eat anything right. unless he has to. And so he's there's this constant little background joke of him like nearly fainting from not eating. And these, to me, sometimes they they were amusing and they kind of fit in. Other times they felt a little bit to me like like a weak attempt to say, hey, we're kind of balanced here. You know, we're looking at both sides. Everybody is ridiculous yeah. in this. Yeah. Whereas I felt that mostly the Animal Liberation Front was extremely righteous and more lovable than the object of this movie's ridicule. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. There are little moments where it almost feels like it's self-aware with how silly the depiction of some of these ALF members get. But then, like you say, it, it doesn't go quite far enough to the point that the narrative doesn't make it clear. Okay, I get that these guys are weird, but should I think that they're weird? You know, it's hard to tell. Yeah. It, it, it kind of reminds me of back in 2016, that glorious presidential election. SNL would have a lot of sketches that would really rake Trump over the coals. And then when it came time for Kate McKinnon to play her Hillary Clinton, she would, uh, the, the running joke was basically, she's just so unrelatable. And it's like, I mean, come on, you, you've heard other things. <laughs> you, there, there's other stuff you yeah. could joke about. <laughs> Come on. So yeah, to that extent, it's yeah you can that you can tell they're trying to poke fun, but they're also trying not to undercut their ambition with the message they're trying to send, which is not necessarily a super nuanced message. Yeah, I can agree with that. Anyways, uh, talking about strange characters, we meant you mentioned earlier. I really want to get this elephant out of the room. Jake Gyllenhaal is one of my favorite actors currently living. I have loved him mm -hmm. in. Well, now, nearly everything I've seen him in. <laughs> so my question for you, Bo, I want you to address this first. Jake Gyllenhaal, good or bad? Go. <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> yeah, so 
I mean, Jake Gyllenhaal, there's just no doubt that he he's a great actor and he's trying all sorts of things. I say, to field your literal question, I would say Jake Gyllenhaal, good. <sighs> and certainly bold. <laughs> yeah, because that said, there have been some, some Gyllenhaal performances that didn't quite resonate with me. And the character that we get from him in Okja is extraordinary. He's sort of channeling a funhouse mirror Steve Irwin, like a sort of crocodile hunter, zany animal documentary host. Yeah, he's, he's kind of like if you took Steve Irwin, Jack Sparrow, and Pee Wee Herman and threw them into a blender. That's a that's a pretty good, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would say those those three about do it. Or you know what he reminded me uh. of? I thought this to me feels like one of the characters that Mike Myers would be playing in the Austin Powers series. <laughs> like one of his. <laughs> well, I can't even remember what the character's Johnny called. Johnny Wilcox. The character's name. Johnny Wilcox. Johnny Wilcox feels like a Mike Myers character to me. <laughs> That's and very accurate. I'll tell you what. I mean, Jake Gyllenhaal certainly goes whole hog, as it were, into this characterization. He's got, you know, the voice, the mannerisms, and the character is just sort of this weird, I mean, he's manic, he's all over the place. Uh We're first introduced to him as sort of a ridiculous character we see, but we see him through the lens of the propaganda, like through his commercials, his on-screen persona. Then when we first meet him, when he comes to inspect Okja for the first time in South Korea, we get to see the, the real guy. And he comes up the mountain to to Mija's house and we can see that he's a bit of a diva he's sweating he's complaining about how is he supposed to be on camera like this and you know fetch him water and all this kind Mm. of stuff and then he sees Okja which I thought this was a little weird too because at the beginning Okja is the first super pig that we see and for a while into the film is the only super pig that we know yeah and we know that Okja wins this competition that's been going on to be the best super pig. And we know that for the corporation, that means essentially the biggest, meatiest, least costly pig. And we see the team is just astounded when they encounter Okja. And this is like maybe their last, certainly not their first pig that they're inspecting from this contest. And they're just blown away. And so we think, or at least I thought, Oh, Okja is like a really massive super pig. Like Okja is special. But uh, as it turns out, when we see the other super pigs, they're essentially, aside from like mild coloration differences, they essentially all look exactly the same. Yeah. At least that's what I thought. They're all the same enormous creature. Yeah, I wondered by what metric they were they were judging Okja to be the most super piggy super pig in existence. Because yeah, as the film gets on, yeah. you sort of see it's like, oh, I mean, I mean, she's 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 cute by super pig standards. Don't get me wrong, but uh... right. But uh, and the reason I bring this up is because one of our first introductions to this sort of really capricious character that that Jake Gyllenhaal is playing is yeah he gets up to the mountain and he's being a diva and he's asking for his water and he's complaining about how is he going to go on camera and he's got this strange vocal tone and he's clearly dived into this zany character and then he sees Okja and he's sort of dumbstruck and we see him kind of drop the diva persona and he just goes up and he's sort of petting the pig and then he goes why aren't why aren't you rolling I can't fake these emotions 
And so the crew's like, oh, and they pull out their cameras. And then as soon as they get their cameras on him, he stops doing this awestruck thing. And he just starts going into his regular shtick of being this big, self-important, wacky guy, which I thought was odd. Yeah. Like, it, it seemed like he wanted them to catch this moment of him admiring the pig. And then he drops it and goes into this character. And yeah, yeah, yeah. like I say, this is this is a capricious character that's kind of jumping back and forth between moods and he's worried and and jealous about maintaining his front as the Mirando Corporation's head guy. He's basically their their spokesperson yeah. as a popular nature documentary guy. Yeah. Yeah, this character it, to me I, you know, I don't I don't mind Jake Gyllenhaal trying something new certainly. I don't mind these comic characters. But again, for me, this falls into the problem that I had with the film overall, is that, you know, there's a lot of, as we say, deft filmmaking going on. And there's good polish to certain scenes. Uh, There's, you know, the production value, the inventiveness of what's happening, and a lot of genuinely watchable characters. But it's just mixed with all of these just wild pitches in tone and and one of them is certainly this character who just is jumping all over the place and is really coming across again like I say you know sort of Mike Myers sort of SNL level yeah which makes it really jarring going against the wonderful little actress playing Mija who is just all straight tenacity as she's just going through this harrowing experience of basically getting beat up and pushed around by every adult yeah. <laughs> as she's just manipulated and used while she tries to save her animal friend. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, that juxtaposed against Gyllenhaal's character. It's kind of like, I, I almost imagine the director's notes for him being just two words, quote unquote, be weird. Like, because like you say, it's it's a bit all over the place. There's, you may have noticed this too. There are moments, I, I'd say maybe about a four-fifths of the time that his character is being filmed and on camera within the context of the movie, I mean, he'll 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 speak with a very charismatic and exuberant version of a more neutral Jake Gyllenhaal. He's not he's not doing this crazy high voice. You know, he he gets a little bit more like, welcome again, as we yeah. observe. Da, 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 da. And it's it's weird that that's his screen voice and the obnoxious, shrill, hey, everybody, <laughs> that's his normal, discreet, private voice. But then even that kind of gets a bit muddled because, especially toward the end as they're doing their this big show in New York, he starts to kind of, he, he just kind of goes a bit nuts with all of the various inflections and, and, and pitches and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, he's a character who we get the idea his, his mental stability is precarious at the best of times. <laughs> yeah. But this movie is sort of witnessing his downfall, his breakdown. So he's he's becoming increasingly more unstable as we go along. Yeah, yeah. Maybe this is a good time to play the clip that I had, which is sort of midway through the film as the news media is picking up on Mija's quest to find Okja. It's turning into sort of a PR disaster for the Mirando Corporation. And so there's this board meeting where they're trying to do damage control and figure out how they're going to how they're going to work through this. And so we have Tilda Swinton's character who is like we said the, the head of this corporation and she's here with her with her board 
and they're just sort of going over ideas. And then, and then Gyllenhaal, who's sort of on the periphery, comes in. She's not the face of the Miranda Corporation. I am. You don't even know if she can do anything but cry. Whereas I am loved all over the world. Could you sit down and shut the f***ing squeaking and whining? You know? You are forcing me. <laughs> I'm forcing you to do what? To examine my options. Oh, really? Okay, go ahead. Examine them. Are you examining them now? Have you finished examining them? Sit. You're a deadbeat. Your ratings are shit. Epic fail. Yeah, so, I mean, that gives anyone who hasn't already jumped into this film an idea of the voice that this character is employing. And uh, this this scene to me illustrates a few things. It, it illustrates the weirdness of Jake Hall's character, uh-huh. which is also, you know, not negligible in this film. <laughs> he's, a, he's a big character. But it also shows the, the strange tones of this movie. Because like I said, at times we're getting this pretty straightforward kind of adventure drama following Mija as she's she's getting beat up at times and she's really playing it straight and going through yeah you know and and sometimes this film is showing us you know disturbing in imagery of like factory farm settings and it can be unsettling uh, one friend was telling me they they couldn't even finish the movie because they found it you know disturbing in in that way mm. and, and yet we're getting this just sort of odd skewering of capitalism, like I keep saying, of, of, of corporatism anyway, that is shown in this scene. And to me is also an example of sometimes it's like attempting to be nuanced satire. And other times it's just big, bombastic, you know, not only the energy level of an SNL sketch, but sort of the... Exuberance. Well, yeah. Yeah, the energy... The exuberance and also maybe the depth of satire of an SNL sketch. You know, it's just this isn't something that requires you to go and put on your thinking cap and, <laughs> and philosophize for a while. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, Tilda Swinton's character shouting epic fail and, <laughs> you know, it's just it comes off a bit ham fisted to me. It's true. And, you know, this is the stuff where I, I wonder maybe it was somebody's job to kind of rein this in because I can see Hall committing to this character, being encouraged, being told that it, it's working and doing things like in that clip, he just sort of leans on some guy's head. Like he, he literally uses a bald man's head as his, you know, and, and that's clearly again, jumping into the realm of like some kind of silly, like, like Jim Carrey kind of comedic moment. Like this isn't something that would, that would be happening in the real world. Yeah. And, you know, maybe for some people that constant jumping back and forth between sort of grounded comedy that we can sort of imagine witnessing and this zany over the top silliness, maybe that works for some people. Maybe that is uh, that could I could see that being even why this film is appealing to certain people. But for me, I just found that I I just I didn't know where to go. And the and the constant jumps kept me from 
just sort of losing myself in the movie and thinking about it afterward, I was constantly startled enough that I would sit back and have to take stock of what's happening <laughs> and then find myself <laughs> kind of uh, losing my way. Yeah. I think that's a completely valid take on it, really. It's it's funny. I was going to ask, is this, uh, apart from Parasite, is this your only other Bong Joon-ho film? Have you seen, for instance, his other American-casted film, Snowpiercer? Well, not American-casted, but English-centric. No, I, I haven't, actually. Uh, Bong Joon-ho is one of these directors that I I know that his filmography is lauded, and I have been meaning to dive in more. But <laughs> yes, this is my second film, Parasite being the first. Okja was my first Bong Joon-ho film, and then I saw Snowpiercer, and then I saw Parasite. And I think, I think Okja prepared me a bit better for the bombastic nature that seems to permeate a lot of his films. Snowpiercer is very similar in that there are a lot of characters who play things very outrageously, but also in a way that makes it not sure it's not you're, it's not clear if it's necessarily trying to be hilarious or absurd. I think it may just be his storytelling style to get actors to really go nuts with their with their material. Strangely enough, Tilda Swinton is also in Snowpiercer as yet another villainous figure. And she's every bit as quirky and bizarre in that movie. Okay, that that's interesting that you say that, because I wondered, watching Parasite, because I feel like Parasite, although it had some much more mild uh, thematic issues, I, I don't want to go too far into that film because that's not what we're talking about, but I didn't, I didn't get the same, any sort of the same bombastic feel from the characters there. The characters, to me... And Parasite, you know, we're, we're much more grounded, mm-hmm. uh, which I think obviously that film, although it has some some comedy to it, is much more of a, a drama than Okja is. Yeah, but yeah. it's interesting that you say that that bombastic nature, it's, maybe that's just a style thing that's happening in his other films too. Yeah, I've noticed actually, now that I think about it, I mean, really, to my knowledge, I could be way off, but I believe Snowpiercer and Okja are his only two films to feature predominantly English-speaking casts. And I haven't seen The Host, but yeah, like like you said, we've both seen Parasite. And frankly, the Korean characters in both Okja and Snowpiercer are fairly grounded as well. So I wonder, I, I, I wonder if it's something he likes to do with his English-speaking actors or... You know, I wonder if it could be a translation thing. Maybe, maybe, because, you know, I, I wonder how many, for instance, how many Korean speakers might watch Jake Gyllenhaal's character and not quite realize how completely insane his character sounds just simply because they don't speak English. They're like, oh, I'm sure that's just a dialect or something. So I, I think about, you know, yeah. I wonder if maybe Parasite, if maybe there's some characters who maybe, maybe there's a Korean who would see Snow, who would see Parasite and be like, oh, that guy was pushing it, you know. And me just yeah. taking the subtitles word for it. Perhaps we're we're just looking at it as you know through very uh, Western eyes and expecting it because it's or because Oakjaw in particular is uh, mostly in English with Hollywood actors mixed in with the Korean cast. It it feels as though and in its themes, it seems targeted toward a Western audience. But I really, you know, it's a good point you raise that I don't know how this film reads to, you know, to a South Korean audience. And maybe there's things there that I'm just just not picking up on in some of this humor and the yeah, yeah. mercurial nature of the film. 
Yeah, it's it's one of those things. I'm starting to wonder if Bong Joon Ho is one of those filmmakers who just kind of implicitly, like, it comes with the territory. When you sign up to watch a Bong Joon Ho film, you're kind of agreeing that you're about to watch kind of an adult fairy tale, like kind of a weird lens on humanity. Which, speaking of which, I, I have just one little clip from Oak Jada Share. Uh, speaking of kind of the tone and how frantic it is, there's a moment that. It's a fairly prominent moment for Jake Gyllenhaal's character, for Johnny Wilcox. He's in the factory farm with Okja, and he is about to extract some meat samples from her. And I think this scene, for me, kind of encapsulates both what I like and dislike about this movie. It's weird. I can't... I couldn't tell you. Gun to my head, you asked me if I thought Okja was a good movie. I'd... I'd ask you to repeat the question a few times while I work out how to escape the room. Um, <laughs> You'd take the bullet. <laughs> yeah, I, I, w- I would try and change the subject. Uh, but th- th- this this scene in particular captures a lot of the thought process that, that I went through watching this film. Because you have Jake Gyllenhaal, who as Johnny Wilcox is really hamming it up. But it's also a scene that is clearly a very dark and sad sequence because you've got Okja who has clearly been abused already in this farm, in this factory, and subjected to even more pain from Johnny Wilcox. Sailor. The shed. Don't worry. You won't die. We're just gonna take some of your meat. Of course. I'm not gonna eat any. We have tasters for that. They're a bunch of half-wet degenerate stars! I'm gonna... I'm gonna poke you in my place. I'm sorry. It's gonna hurt. I'm an animal lover. Everybody knows that about me. So it's a really interesting scene because there's a very, very brief moment where I think Jake Gyllenhaal is actually giving a really good performance. And it's the moment he says, I'm an animal lover. The way he kind of exhales that sentence with this sort of defeated self-loathing is really good. I I actually really like the way he delivers that line. But everything on either side of it, especially like right after he says, everybody knows that about me. Like he just instantly pivots back into, you know, his Mike Myers spoof character. And it's, you know, he's... He's sucking meat out of this living, you know, intelligent hippo pig. And it's very it's a very sad moment. But you've got him flailing his arms around and screeching and, and squealing. And man, it's just a weird movie, man. Yeah. And for nobody either. Like at this point, the, he has no audience. He's just alone with the with the super pig. Yeah. You know, he's not performing. There's for no anyone. affectation to be had. This is pure unadulterated, intimate Johnny Wilcox for this brief moment. Yeah, it is bizarre. And, you know, the conflict of this character, you know, a lot of characters are in conflict and the movie's in conflict. And I think we're meant to be somewhat in conflict as the audience, right? Because 
a lot of us, a lot of humans in the world are wrestling with this idea of, yeah, they don't want the super pig to die, but also, you know, they're going to have bacon with their eggs tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. And so that's kind of the... the it's the dichotomy of human nature. Yeah, the dichotomy of the film. Yeah. But as it goes along, it's like I said, I don't know that dichotomy is even the, the right word because it, at times it feels... Like there's, you know, one note and at other times it's just a cacophony of things happening. Yeah. It almost makes me wonder if the Mirando Corporation would still be the villains if they had managed to create a a non-sentient lump of meat that you would get from an Oakjaw super pig. Yeah. It's interesting because it's, you know, Oakjaw is made in a lab. The the whole species is made in a lab. and But there's still the question of animal cruelty and whatnot. And I just think, you know, I think we've been we've been working on lab-grown meat for a while now. You've got those impossible burgers that are, people are trying to trot out. There's more and more kind of soy and bean-based meat replacements that people are trying to make. And, like, you know, you hear about how they're trying to make legit lab-grown meat without having to actually kill anything that, that had a mother. But, uh... Right. Yeah, and it does – it's a really odd variation on that theme of, like, that's where the trend's going – but oh, what if instead of that, we created a great big animal that's even more intelligent <laughs> and has even more, yeah, you know, that it's even more morally questionable to yeah to kill? And like, what if that's the way that we do it? <laughs> exactly. It's like it's like, hey, you guys wanted lab-grown meat. We've made lab-grown meat. You're welcome. Now, as a as a little footnote, a little uh, aside over here, a little clause to the agreement. Uh, this lab-grown meat happens to be more sentient and emotional than most humans. Okay, anyways, eat up. Yum, <laughs> right. yum, 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 yum. What you're saying about whether they, you know, would be the villains and everything just leads me to kind of a, an odd final point, mm-hmm. maybe. Toward the end of the film, we've we've continually had Tilda Swinton's character, or first character, I should say, mm-hmm. referring to her twin sister. She's just been in the background, the idea that her twin sister, who's sort of this more, um, who's who's less hip, less feeling, sort of a military efficient sister who's just hovering in the in the background of the company somewhere and everybody's just kind of speaking of her. Um, we hear her uh, through the phone, a phone conversation at one point, I think. We don't see her till right at the end of the film when she comes and just sort of does a quick hostile takeover of the yeah. company, trying to patch up all the mess that her sister is made by trying to ride this line between, you know, uh, profit and morality. And she comes in and she's just going to be all about business and take things where they need to go for the good of the corporation. And this is culminating right at the time where Okja is being loaded up into the sort of slaughter machine where, where she's, you know, where she's going to be killed and, and cycled through the factory farm in this you know, pretty disturbing factory farm scene with all these super pigs being brought to the slaughter. And even even with, with Mija right there begging for the pig's life and all of the news and all of the brouhaha that's happened on television and all of this, the CEO character just is not going to relent. They're just going to, she's just going to kill this animal right there because, and she says... I quote, we can only sell the dead ones. And then a moment happens in the film. She, Mija, that is, is able to purchase Okja from from the company. And all of a sudden, just like that, 
everything's fine and they release Oakjaw and they can all go home. Yeah. And to me, this was another one of those absurd moments where I didn't know if it was supposed to be kind of like a zany, funny thing that we haven't encountered this point until now. And also such a bizarre idea of like what capitalism must mean to to, to kind of lead it to like, oh, yeah, this is the only possible way we can think to make money off this adorable, giant, sentient animal that people are following on the news that has this lovable little companion. And the only thing we can think to do, the most we can milk out of this animal in order to get our money's worth is to slaughter it and turn it into a few pulled pork burgers or whatever. I was just like, what? (laughs) Surely there are a myriad of things that that you could use... Oakjaw four that would make you money. Yeah, even from the In addition to and and the very least of those just being, yeah, let them buy Oakjaw <laughs> for some money. And then, you know, you think that maybe they're just like trying to make a point. Like they're just like, no, this is how it's gonna go because this is how we said it's gonna go, and we're this big evil corporation. But no, like as soon as she offers even, you know, just a bit of money, they're like, oh, okay, yeah, take take Oakjaw. Like, <laughs> this all could have been avoided if you'd done that right at yeah. the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Uh, once again, the, 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 the message gets muddled in a very strange ending that it, it, it's really hard to know what you're supposed to take away from it. But the movie made a splash, you know, people, people loved it. It has, what, an 87% on Rotten Tomatoes, clearly more divisive on Letterboxd. It, yeah, it, seem, it seems like a love it or hate it kind of thing. Seems like I, I actually read about when it debuted at Ken, the Ken Festival, which I've been pronouncing cans up until very recently. <laughs> it got it got booed at its screening, but the reason it got booed is just because the the word Netflix popped up on the screen. Apparently, they really hate Netflix over yeah. at Ken. Yeah, and. Uh, I just I, I wanted to ask, Bo. Maybe you're more familiar with this booing at the Ken Festival. This is I've 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 looked it up. This is a this is a common occurrence. Are these not grown adults watching these movies? Yeah. So Ken is the big French film festival, right? Arguably, right up there with like Toronto and Sundance. It's one of the really, I mean, not arguably. It's definitely one of the biggest, most prestigious film festivals out there. Uh-huh. And the the French audience tends to be very critical. Can is known for kind of oddball picks. You know, it's not a festival that you can go, oh, this one can, it's clearly going to, you know, be one of the best picture contenders. Mm -hmm. That's not the case. And yeah, there's a history of them voicing their, their taste, you know, through, through booze or walkouts or things like this. And then, yeah, particularly with the Netflix controversy, which is kind of at the heart of what we're doing here with this podcast. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Can has been, let's say, antagonistic to the idea of streaming original movies, you know, movies that aren't getting the theatrical treatment. And there's been some issues with the way they feel Netflix uh, was operating with not allowing their films to, to go to cinema, with keeping them exclusively, you know, streaming. And I think some of that's been worked out and Netflix is, you know, Netflix recently bought a theater and a cinema that is in LA that they're going to be playing their movies at. And (laughs) everybody's sort of changing the rules. And I mean, that's what, that's where we're living here on this podcast is 
where is the dust going to settle on all of this streaming versus cinema? You know, are they are they going to continue side by side or what, what's going to happen there? We got to keep our bases covered so that no matter where things land, we can tell everybody, hey, we told you so. Uh, exactly. <laughs> we had every angle from, for this podcast. It is the future. It is going to die soon. All of the above. Uh <laughs> Well, Bo, uh, just to wrap up here on Okja, who do you who do you think would 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 get the most out of a movie like Okja? Who do you think is the intended audience for a flick like this? Well, uh, so I would say, you know, it's hard to say where the where the again, like you know, as we've been kind of harping on where the themes would land, because I would say, oh, maybe someone who's a vegan is you know is going to to dig this film or, or someone who's at least against factory farming, they're going to say, oh yeah, this, this resonates with me. I get it. But at the same time, I find some people saying that it's kind of harsh for that. You know, it's harping on the same theme for its two hour plus runtime. Plus it has some of that disturbing imagery in there <laughs> that, um, you know, that they might find uh, triggering for lack of a better word. Now, on the other hand, theme wise, if you're not, someone who's against eating meat or you don't really give a hoot about factory farming one way or the other, then certainly it seems like this film is trying to reach you. But I don't know if it's going to, you know, whether it's just going to make that viewer uncomfortable or or what. I would say, you know, certainly if you're if you're interested in Bong Joon-ho, which I would say if you like movies, you ought to be, then, you know, this is this is one to watch. If you, you know, if you're a Jake Gyllenhaal fan and you're trying to <laughs> to witness the scope of what he's capable of, then this is, you know, worth ticking the box, um, <laughs> at least. Yeah, as far as who's going to really enjoy this movie, uh, you know, if you like dark comedy, if you like movies that are off the beaten path, then... You know, there's going to be there's going to be something here for you, I would say. Yeah. All right. Well, run, do not walk to your nearest television set and uh, give Oakjaw a watch. <laughs> it's, it's on Netflix. Check it out. All right. Well, Bo, you assigned me a film in response to Oakjaw. Yes. And it was it was Black Beauty. No. I have watched All it. All right. Oh, hold on. I am. Uh... Whoop. Whoop. Oh. Wait. What? <laughs> Chris. <laughs> <laughs> the Black Stallion. Oh, sorry, no, it was the Black do- the Black the Stallion. Black Dahlia. No. Oh, right, the Black Stallion. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, this is the the Black Stallion, the the nineteen seventy nine film directed by Carol Ballard, a Criterion film. So this was my first time ever seeing it. I have to say, I uh, obviously there are there are parallels between that film and Oakjaw. You have a, a child forming a friendship with an animal. And in some ways, it can go a bit deeper than that. And in some indirect ways, I think they're a little bit similar in that. And I know I'm probably wrong when I say this, as I am with most things I say. You're here. But for me, tonally and thematically, it, it, it was a little bit inconsistent for me as well. But to, to bring our, our listeners up to speed, uh, The Black Stallion, like Bo says, was released in 1979. It's a story that opens on a young boy named Alec who is on a boat with his father in the Mediterranean somewhere. 
there is a a horse, a black stallion on board, and the uh, Alec is very taken with it. He's very interested in it, but the horse's owners are kind of you know hushing him, chewing him away. Leave leave the horse alone, and. His dad tells him a story about a horse, a famous horse that was ridden by Alexander the Great, I think? Yeah. Bucephalus. He tells him the the story of Bucephalus and how he was this kind of unbreakable horse. And then later that night, there's this massive storm hits the boat. And I want to come back to this because the boat sequence was probably one of my favorite in the whole movie. But this, this boat is getting rocked big time. There's a lot of mayhem that ensues and... In the end, Alec gets his life jacket torn off by somebody else from take it for themselves. And he gets knocked overboard, but not before the stallion manages to get loose and leaps overboard. And so as this boat is sinking into the ocean, he sort of, Alec, makes his way to the stallion, is able to get to it. And then the next morning, they wind up on the beach of this deserted island. And it's presumed that everyone else on the boat has drowned. And so... For me, going into this movie blind was actually a really interesting and fun experience. I didn't know anything about it going into it. I had only read the premise, which was a boy and a horse form a very strong bond when they become stranded on an island together. So I was thinking, okay, so this is kind of like Castaway with a horse and a kid. I can get behind that. And I have to say, the, the entire sequence that takes place on the island is beautifully done. It's an amazing sequence. You get this this sort of standoffishness because, you know, as the movie establishes fairly early on, this black stallion is very standoffish. It's very, very wild and unbroken. And the horse and the boy, Alec, kind of maintain their distance from each other for a while. And bit by bit, they, you know, they slowly start to kind of get closer together. And at one point, the horse ends up stomping on a snake to save Alec in a a very tense sequence. Filmed, by the way, with a real fanged venomous serpent. Really? Yeah. Did they use a stunt boy? <laughs> no, it was it was interesting. A quick aside here. Yeah, Carol Ballard, the director, talked about how they, they brought in a snake wrangler, like with a, with a serpent, and they pulled it out and mm-hmm. the cobra, you know, is slithering around and he says, wow. The director's like, wow, that's, that's you know, such a beautiful snake. It's amazing that, it, you know... You've got it all defanged and everything, and the the guy's like, "Oh no, no, no! It's it's got it fanged. It's it's still venomous." And he said, "What? Well, I can't. How am I supposed to film with this this boy next to this the snake? You know?" <laughs> and the snake wrangler goes, "Oh no, 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 no problem!" And he whips out a little case and he pulls out a little n- needle and syringe and says, "Oh, if he gets bit, we just stick him with this, and you know he'll be right as rain in two or three days." And <laughs> And wow. the director goes, you know, wow, whoa. And <laughs> what they end up doing, actually, in that scene is what they managed to cleverly hide from the camera is that they've stuck a pane of glass between the uh, snake and the boy. So The old Indiana Jones trick. Yeah, so the snake is never actually in danger of biting him, and they able, they're able to get those extraordinary shots with the snake right up next to him. Wow. Yeah, it was very well done. I I want to say this movie did a fantastic job with its practical effects. Yeah. But uh, there's there's this moment after that snake sequence where he extends an almost literal olive branch in the form of seaweed mm. to the horse to try and uh make nice with it. And I have to say that like 
If you haven't seen The Black Stallion, check it out. Please go watch it because it's rare for a movie to make me feel like I am connecting with the world, that I am connecting with nature, the way that that scene was. It's filmed in a very long take. It's a very, very long shot. And frankly, considering working with both a child actor and a horse as your two leads in a film, to me at least, with my limited experience, sounds like a director's nightmare. Like, oh gosh, how do we get the horse to cooperate? How do we get the kid to give a good performance? But the kid was stellar. Like, uh, what's his name? The actor who played Alec. He's been in so little. Yeah, well, essentially just this and a sequel years later. Yeah, it, very, very minimal. He went he went to a life of ranching and trucking and stuff after that, which is crazy to me because he was an absolutely phenomenal uh, actor. He did such a great job with this. So you have this very real raw performance from this kid trying to survive on this island and this horse that is reacting. I don't know how much of it was the horse just being trained to behave a certain way, but it I was 100% completely convinced that this child and this horse were becoming literal friends on screen in front of me. And the moment that the horse finally takes the seaweed, they're running on the beach together, and you just see this bond forming in real time. And it's this amazing moment. And, I mean, the whole island sequence has this feel to it. And the funny thing is, I had read earlier that Mickey Rooney was in this movie, and I thought, you know, okay, well, they're on a deserted island. I wonder if Mickey Rooney's going to play some salty pirate that comes to the island and wants the horse for himself or something. Like, how, how, how do we introduce more characters into this mix? But then, you know, halfway through the movie, these Italian guys show up in a fisher boat, and they're just like, oh, hey, we'll, we'll take you. And they, you know, they save Alec, and in a very dramatic and exciting sequence, you know, uh, Old Blackie. I don't know. Did the horse ever get a name, Bo? I don't think the horse was ever actually named. The Black is what they usually called him. Okay. So the Black ends up catching up to the boat, and it's it's almost this gut-wrenching goodbye of him almost having to leave this horse alone on the island after it saved his life. But then the second half of the film is, in my mind, a completely different movie. Because the second half of the film is Alec and the Black are at home in, in New York State. And it's he's just kind of like adjusting to life with this horse. And then at one point, the black escapes and he, he loses him. And then he eventually finds him the next day in the care of Mickey Rooney's character, Henry, who is a former jockey who was able to kind of get the black under control and, and get it in his uh, in his stables. And you end up getting this kind of three-way friendship forming between Alec, Henry, and the Black as Henry sort of teaches Alec how to be a jockey and he teaches the Black how to be a racehorse. And it's kind of this convergence of the three of them kind of working together. And it's the, the second half, I would say, I think I could have watched the first half and seen a completely separate movie for the second half. And if it was executed well, it would have been just as satisfied. Like, on the one hand, I get it, you know, there's this unbreakable horse and, and you know, how, how, how do you break him with, you know, through friendship and, and respect and stuff. And uh, so to that extent, I get it. I, I get where, what they're going for with this kind of pivot into becoming a racehorse and a jockey. But uh, yeah, the, the, the film culminates in this big final race where Alec and the Black are, are racing. It's, it's this huge, famous race. It's like the most prestigious race and well yeah they they pitted him against the two fastest horses so the stake the stakes are pretty high on that front but uh 
honestly, I could, I, I would have, I would have happily settled for a two-hour movie of just this boy and this horse on the island together. I'm not complaining necessarily. I liked the second half, and I like, I thought Mickey Rooney did a great job. It's kind of funny. He got nominated for best supporting actor, which that's not to say he didn't deserve it. I think he did a great job. But again, I'm just, I'm just floored that the actor who played Alec didn't get any any nods for it because I thought that was a fantastic performance for a child actor or for any actor by any standard. And uh, I think the black should have gotten best supporting horse also because that was a really well-trained, good good horse. Yeah, I mean, you've, you've tapped into one of the most talked about aspects of the film and that is the sort of dividing line at the halfway point where we really switch gears. From I mean, because the first half of the movie is really, I mean, it's nearly plotless. You know, we're just sort of, yeah. you know, we, we see, of course, the, we establish that Alec is on a boat with his dad and we see a little bit of he's, you know, the kind of a boy he is and how he's interested in this horse and he, and he hears the, the fable and then this storm hits and the and fire breaks out as well on the on the boat and everybody's abandoning ship and it's going down and all that chaos and then we're we're entered into this island sequence and this island sequence you know there's been very little dialogue actually even on the boat and then when we get to the island there's none at all and so we go through the first hour of this movie with very little dialogue, mostly just sort of watching Alec, you know, develop the relationship that he has with the Black. The stallion, which is, uh, again, kind of in the cliche of, you know, the unbreakable horse. It's, it, you know, this is, a, this is a wild animal, a very vivacious wild animal. And so that was, yeah, that was one of the main things I was going to ask you is what you thought of the, the two halves of this film. The big critique usually, I mean, the, the consensus seems to be that the first half is just this sort of wonderful, you know, unique within cinema sequence, essentially. It's almost just two mm-hmm. sequences. And that the second half is a much more conventional movie that maybe we've seen before. Not necessarily yeah. a bad movie, but just, just more conventional. And, you know, Carol Ballard, the director, addressed this as well, because this this movie is based on a novel. And he, he said that... He was also wondering how how to deal with this because he said, you know, the second half, he, he said it had a, a leave it to beaver feel to him. You know, the, the old trainer, the, <laughs> the young boy, the unbreakable horse, and how are they going to triumph against all odds? And it kind of falls into those different uh, sports movie cliches and so on. And he said for him, the way that he tried to, to work against that was to keep a certain level of improvisation going into the performances. And he said that to him, especially the key to the second half is Mickey Rooney's character, Henry. And the fact that Mickey Rooney plays such a, a grounded character for all of the, the cliche of the wizened former jockey kind of coming back he he keeps the keeps the character sort of grounded and Mickey Rooney is such an interesting actor i think i mean he had such a long career it yeah, appeared in yeah. so very many movies throughout that career and you know it's interesting because maybe you know i don't think people really complain about <laughs> Mickey Rooney i think he's generally liked as an actor but he doesn't usually jump to the top of everyone's mind when they're putting together their best actors of all time list. Yeah, he wasn't exactly the Daniel Day-Lewis of his time. 
Well, it's interesting because Laurence Olivier, sometimes thought of as one of the greatest screen actors of all time, at stage actors as well, if not Britain's greatest, he, Lord Olivier, said that he thought Mickey Rooney was the finest actor that America ever produced. <laughs> I mean, what, what is your reaction to, what did you think of Mickey Rooney's performance in this film? You know, do you agree with Carol Ballard that that is kind of what is keeping the second half of the film from being too trite? Or what, what is your thought? Yeah, you know, it's funny because when I, when I think of Mickey Rooney and the things I've seen him in, triteness it often accompanies it. You know, it, mo- most of the stuff that I have seen him in, because most of my Mickey Rooney exposure has been through Disney and, you know, the more kind of fun, childish, silly stories. I think my first Mickey Rooney movie and the one I remember the most clearly is Pete's Dragon, in which he plays a bumbling, drunken sailor or lighthouse man. Sorry. It, but here he plays it very straight and with a lot of gravitas. There, there is there is a a weight and a seriousness to what he says, but in, I don't know. He he was he was he played it very likably. Like I I don't know. Like it it didn't seem like his character had much of an arc to go through. I didn't really get the impression that he was a super disenchanted, disillusioned, broken man when you know when Alec finds him. It seems like he's yeah. got most of his crap together. Yeah, it's true. There's subtle hints, you know, if he there's at one point he says he to someone that he needs this, he needs this comeback opportunity. But you're right. This isn't a movie where, you know, it doesn't go so far into the sports movie cliche that he's like, you know, embittered and washed up. It's like, yeah, lives alone and drinks himself to sleep at night, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> like we get yeah, the idea yeah. that he's he's interested in the challenge and he's happy to get back in the ring, as it were. But that if it hadn't happened, his life wouldn't have been a disaster. He, he was doing okay. And I, th- I think that's, like you say, I think that's one of the reasons why the second half s- is still really good. I-, I think, to kind of paraphrase what you were saying, the first half was a very unconventional but deeply rewarding sequence to experience, the, the deserted island moment. But the second half... It, it's going through very weathered, well-trodden trope territory, but it does so in such a way that it is, I guess in my mind, it's the best kind of self-awareness in that they don't lampshade it. They don't call attention to it in a way as to say, yep, we know this has been done a million times before, but in a way they still kind of acknowledge it very subtly by simply doing something a bit more with it. Because, you know, it's a tropey sequence, but it's probably the like the, one of the best executed versions of the trope that I've seen for the very reasons like you say we don't have this washed up drunken disgraced ex-coach John Candy from Cool Runnings type you know yeah he wants this and in some ways he needs this and yeah I think the writing carries it Mickey Rooney's performance carries it bringing up the tropes to me yeah you know I think this is such a for me, it's a it's a phenomenal film, and and it really works. I think it's I think it's beautiful, and it, I'll I'll go into several of the reasons why. But I think one of the most interesting things that this film does, and part of the craft of this film that I admire so much, is the tropes and the stereotypes, because this film takes those stereotypes and like a like a genre film, it uses them as the shorthand to communicate with the audience and. We talked about how this opening sequence, this you know, this or this opening couple of sequences, is done in this unconventionally quiet way, but this isn't mm-hmm. an art house film in the sense that 
you know, we're not just watching, you know, a lot of mood um, unfold. It isn't a tone poem. Yeah. It's not like he... Yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't look at a sea turtle, and the sea turtle represents the 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 lost wisdom of his grandfather or something. It's <laughs> right. Very... And and although it does allow itself to go into these, you know, sort of perhaps you could say poetic sequences on the island, it's still very grounded in essentially a straightforward adventure movie. This is one of those I think too rare films that you can just neatly put in the adventure film category. And it's interesting that it's able to have all of these moments and still feel conventional, but not come across as any sort of a, a B movie or anything that you would get out of like a your typical, like really hardline genre film. And I think that's because it embraces the stereotypes and the cliches and the tropes and uses them to further everything it's doing. I mean, you think about the characters in this film. They're all a stereotype. Like at the beginning mm-hmm. when, you know, he watches his father in a poker game and all the characters in the poker game, you know, look like they just picked one out of every type of like an adventure. Like, oh, here's the there's the old professor and there's the Arabian guy and there's the African. He's got his pipe and, the you know, and they're all just sort of and you could look at some of these characters and maybe even get to the point where they're sort of problematic. You know, later we have the character of that the carriage driver with his horse Napoleon, and he could maybe fall into mm-hmm. the category of what sometimes referred to as the magic Negro. And maybe that's a that's a type that is problematically overused for, you know, people who have less representation in Hollywood. But really every character is stereotyped in this film. Everyone is sort of a kind of a surface level representation, but rather than that being their full depth and giving us a sort of bland movie, it's more as a way of artfully guiding us through this movie. This is a movie that I think uses ellipses very well. You know, we never we never have, for example, on the island, we never see Alec break down and cry. And part of that's because he's a stoic little trooper. But we do get moments where you know, we flash back to him in the cave and we see the remnants of the tears on his face. You know, he's lost yeah, his father. Yeah. He's stranded on this island. And he's a boy who can sort of take care of himself, you know, we see. But obviously it's taking an emotional toll. And rather than having us watch the, you know, watch him break down and cry as we would get even in a good movie, we just see the remnants of those tears. And there's so many moments like that in the film where you just, Mm -hmm. they don't have to walk you through every step of the way. And I think part of that is perhaps because it leans so heavily into these tropes. You've you've kind of helped me crystallize my own thoughts on it as you were talking, because it, like, you're right. So much of this film was, I guess, in a manner of speaking, was better than going purely off the existence of tropes and cliches alone was better than it had any right to be. Specifically because there was just so many tropes, so much familiar territory. But I almost kind of see it like uh, like the, the tropes of this story were kind of like a well-prepared medium grain white rice, you know. And then the substance of the story was this um, incredible mind-blowing curry you put over the top of it where – you can they they sort of they took these these well trodden well known staples of storytelling and they used them as a vehicle to create a really fascinating character study a very introspective piece on 
nature and humanity and the connections between them. And I think that's a good way to put it as, you know, like you're saying that it's, they find a way to turn it into a vehicle for that. And I think that gives it mm-hmm. a really interesting duality where instead of becoming, you know, an artsy film that only, you know, a certain type of person is really going to get behind. This is a movie that I think kids could watch. This is a movie that follows traditional Hollywood beats enough that your average just sort of popcorn moviegoer is going to be able to sit back and kind of enjoy this movie. But yet there's so much there in terms of craft and artistry that it becomes a film that defies the categorization of, you know, as much as it's, it is firmly categorized as, as an adventure film, it's one of those movies that is, you know, kid-friendly and easy to watch, but is also, you know, so wonderfully artistic. And, you know, I mean, it's not, it's very rare that you could have a almost, in a way, by the numbers adventure movie that has, you know, extended sequences with no dialogue and just running around watching a horse. Yeah. And to have yeah. that fit into a conventional film so well is, I think, a testament to how uniquely incredible this movie is. Yeah. No, it's true. It's it's something that I think, you know, later on down the line throughout the years, Pixar kind of was able to capture a, a similar angle with some of their films where yeah. – you could easily say this is a family film. It's, you know, it's a film for kids and everything. But any adult watching it knows there's so much going on here and in such a way that it's not confusing the kids. And hearing you vocalize it is making me realize one of my biggest takeaways from this movie was even just the word cliche is a completely arbitrary label because in the end, all that matters is did you feel something? You know, did it. Did it get you to learn something about yourself, about the world? Because in the end, whether or not it's something that's been quote unquote done before is irrelevant if it was able to get a reaction out of you. And that's exactly what this movie did. It got a very strong and oddly peaceful reaction out of me. Yeah. And and you could do that, right, by being novel, by being original, or in this case, by bringing this level of craft and artistry to something that is not novel. Yeah. Yeah. What is it they say that there's only, uh, what, seven original stories in the entire world or something like that? Yeah. Well, that's the that's the McKee hypothesis in his famous book story. Yeah. He says there's seven story plots, I guess. Right, right. And it's, I mean, obviously that's debatable, you know, but uh, I can agree with the general sentiment of the base for any good story isn't really where the magic happens. The part that changes lives and compels people and and creates these amazing worlds is where you go from that common thread. And yeah, as far as uh, (laughs) if we had to have a celebrity death match between Mija and Okja and Alec and the Black, my money would be on Alec and the Black, I have to say. I bought their relationship more. I Yeah, I was going to I wanted to ask you about that because you know, I mean, in some ways it's a it's a forced comparison, but in other ways it's quite apt. Mm-hmm. And I just think it's interesting. I mean, what did you think about what well, you say you buy their relationship more? And certainly with Okja, you know, it's a relationship where they grew up together, Okja and the Mija. 
Yeah, yeah. Grew up together, you know, and as a pet, whereas circumstances have thrust Alec and the Black together, and they sort of have to earn a mutual respect. So it's coming at it from a different angle that way. But um, one thing about Okja, with Okja, one of the troubles I had with the film was figuring out how much Okja herself, the pig, was dangerous or not. Because Okja is a very large, heavy animal. And even benevolent, large, heavy animals can wreak a lot of damage by just their their nature. And, you know, yeah, yeah. a... A pig and a a super pig, perhaps especially, is not exactly a, you know, dexterous animal for maneuvering <laughs> around the human world. And yet the the film Okja could never seem to decide whether or not Okja causes a bunch of damage or is dangerous to the people around her or whether she's able to just kind of get around that in kind of this cartoony zone it lives in. I mean, sometimes she's crashing into things and things are falling. Other times she's able to like sort of catch Mija in her mouth and like ride around with her and Mm -hmm. maneuver through tight spaces. And I just think that's interesting, you know, I mean, not exactly a fair comparison in what they're trying to do. But with with the Black, I, I so much believed the wildness of the black and developed a respect for that wildness to the point that there are just incredible scenes between Alec and the black because you're thinking, wow, there's like what I'm seeing now. And, you know, there's no CG going on. This is 1979. Although there may be stunt people at certain points, clearly there, you know, there must have been, but so much is frankly presented that we know that this is the boy interacting with the horse. And even though we know that the horse must not be, you know, an actual wild horse, it must be a trained animal, there's still that sense of of danger. And, this, you know, the, I mean, he's riding the horse bareback. The horse is maybe nipping at him or coming up against him or rearing up on its on its hindquarters. And, and I felt that I could understand who this animal was and the wildness there and the possible danger and respect it as an animal where for me, Okja was much more of sort of a cartoon companion. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. Cause I mean, I don't want to throw any shade at the, I mean, being an animator myself, I can understand the painstaking work that goes into making something like Oakjaw work and reading about some of the behind the scenes stuff, they actually did a pretty good combination of, you know, real world puppetry with a CGI creation to try and make it feel like as much of a physical presence as possible. And all things considered, and especially considering the fact that based on the story, it was absolutely necessary to create an artificial creature for the movie. Right. They did a fantastic job. But I, compl- I get what you're saying. Every moment with the black is this this raw moment where it's like I didn't, you know, deep down, obviously, I knew that they weren't that this horse wasn't going to trample this kid and then roll credits 35 minutes into the movie or anything. <laughs> but uh, you're right, and this is why I think this is why I think the black deserves best supporting horse because either that horse was insanely well trained. Or this crew, these actors were very, very trusting of a literally wild horse because 
that was some of the best horse acting I've ever seen as far as selling me on the concept of a wild, untamable, unbreakable horse that is slowly, gently allowing someone into its life. And, you know, I, I have nothing against CGI, especially when it's coupled with practical effects. I'm always a big fan of, of mixed media like that. Yeah. But as far as making something feel... And, the, you know, obviously they're two different stories. But to capture the feeling of what these characters were going through, there is no way to do it other than how they did it. If they, I mean, like if, for instance, obviously this is so far outside the realm of reality, but if, if let's say they were making the Black Stallion today and they use the Oakjaw method, which would be absurd because real horses exist. You don't have to invent it like a super pig. But, you know, if they were going that route and, you know, we might say, wow, that's some very well done horse CGI but that thought would be at the back of your mind the entire time of admiring the craftsmanship yeah. of the creation you're seeing and not wondering what could happen next. Well, that that hyper real CG animal animation is something that we are starting to see. I mean, that's what Disney's been playing around with, with, you know, their new versions of The Lion King or, you know, and we are seeing that happen. And I think it is conceivable to say that if the movie were made today, that maybe they're, you know, likely for a number of reasons, there would be some CG finagling going on in addition to using a live animal. But even if there weren't, there's something about the fact that we would, we, we might suspect that there was. Yeah. You know, yeah. it would be a little bit harder for us to, to buy the fact that this is you know, that this is actually happening. And again, I don't, I, like you, I don't say that to disparage CG animation. I think, I think it's great to let traditional methods continue, but to embrace uh, what newness and innovation you can add to yeah. the medium as well. And this brings me to a, a thought that I had. I've been watching Herzog's masterclass on filmmaking, Werner Herzog. And he uh, he brings up a lot of, you know, it's a it's it's well worth diving into <laughs> and unpacking. But for the purposes of, of right now, I'm just going to mention that he talks a lot about how you need to let the audience trust their eyes again. And Herzog is known for taking practical effects to their absolute, you know, <laughs> stretching the bounds of ethical and <laughs> and moral. Uh, <laughs> you know, limits as he does all these things to achieve practical effects. But that's something that he believes very strongly is trusting your eyes. And I don't think The Black Stallion is a movie that, you know, you sort of watch going like, wow, this is all real. And that's why it's so interesting. I think the the beauty of the images stand alone. Yeah. But there is that added element of seeing the way that it's created and and knowing that that so much of what you're seeing is actually happening yeah. and that it must be happening that adds to the magic of this movie, especially in the island sequence. Yeah, exactly. And it's, in my mind, it eliminates yet another of many barriers that stand between the director and the audience. Because with any movie, you know, to get to the heart of it, you have to strip away a lot of layers between yourself and the audience to make a connection with them. And in this case, like you say, the movie doesn't really call attention to how real it is. And at least for me, as I was watching it, I wasn't thinking like, wow, this is so real. Like, this is really happening. Look how, you know, what a well-trained horse. What a cool this or that. It was just 
I was sucked into the moment. I wasn't thinking about anything other than the moment that was playing out on screen. So you're able to kind of break through that subconscious wall that a lot of people have. So it's not necessarily about bragging rights or about authenticity or whatever. It's it's purely about drilling into the back of the audience's head and tapping into a nerve as swiftly and as smoothly and as painlessly as possible. And like you say, this well-trained horse they had, this amazing sequence between the Black and Alec on this deserted island was 100% that. You got you got pulled into it immediately. You know, Carol Ballard, the director, said that the first hour of the film was about 10 pages of script, <laughs> which for anyone who doesn't know, generally the rule is that in a conventional Hollywood movie, one page of script equals about one minute of screen time. So obviously for the first hour to be 10 pages, you know, means that they're dealing with just sort of broad... You know, I'm imagining the screenplay, you know, is reading something like the boy tries to feed the horse on the island, you know. And but what we're getting is all these great moments that have this real spontaneity to them. Mm-hmm. Again, like we're saying, held within very firmly within the strictures of cliche, for lack of a better word. But yet there's all this spontaneity there. And I was listening to Carol Ballard talking about how they filmed those sequences. And he said, you know, they spent, I think it I think it was three months, he said, on the island and just sort of doing all sorts of shots. They were just letting things happen and filming them. And then obviously they get edited together in a very beautiful way. And, and, and I think you get a sense of that. It, watching the film and, and stepping back later and thinking about it, there's no other way they could have done it than to just allow the horse and the boy to interact and to walk about and to, you know, I mean, there's only, certainly they were doing a lot of work and there was a lot of craft and guidance and and happening and there had to have been. Mm -hmm. But also they are, I think, just letting things occur and just making sure that they're capturing them in the most picturesque way that they can. Yeah. And Carol Ballard said that, you know, again, the duality of this movie Uh, At that halfway mark, Carol Ballard said that they were able to get away with so much because this is Francis Ford Coppola produces this film, hires Ballard out of nowhere. This is his first feature film. He's done like little educational documentary type things, the short ones, but they were buddies in film school. So he pulls them out. He he gets them doing this film. They're, They're filming on this Italian island and they're just so cut off from the traditional studio system and everything of the time, you know, I mean, it was the 70s, but of even the the conventions of that time, that they're able to really do that, to take three months filming on the island in a way that they never would have been able to do under a more traditional program, or if they were filming there in the US, you know, with all the cost, it was just this little crew of guys on this island putting this together. And then, you know, then you do step back into the, you know, with Mickey Rooney and the rest, presumably a more traditional film crew and all of that going on. But I think that, well, it it just increases that dual nature that we were talking about. Yeah, yeah. That one thought that came to my mind as you were, as I was watching and again hearing you say all that is a lot of this film did feel similar to one some of the more well-made nature documentaries where you just you just wonder like how on earth did they capture this amazing moment and you know for me that's like 
the pinnacle of that is the black and Alec bonding over this piece of seaweed. But I, I, it, it makes me think that there's, you know, there's three ingredients, three common ingredients to making something like that island sequence. And it's basically patience, ambition, and editing. Just being being willing to wait and ready to strike the moment that something good happened and then just editing away probably hundreds and hundreds of hours of unusable footage to get that one beautiful moment that, that pops out. <laughs> uh, one thing we haven't talked about with the Criterion Collection and this sort of world of cinema and also physical media versus streaming and intangible internet things is that uh, the Criterion Collection releases all of their films in these well-packaged Blu-rays, you know, with original designs and so forth. And I just think the the Black Stallion, I don't know how well you can see this, Chris, but I think it has one of the most beautiful designs of any of the criterions just speaking about the case and the artwork wow yeah that is gorgeous and it's a drawing of that island sequence which we keep talking about with all of these superlatives like beautiful wonderful incredible etc <laughs> um <laughs> yeah but oh, yeah this great. is a film that criterion knocked it out of the park with uh the case i remember that was actually you know i'd seen the black stallion as a child but i had really forgotten all of it. And I think, like you were joking, maybe had conflated it with like Black Beauty or other, you know, horse films. <laughs> and then I, I, but I kept, when I was looking through Criterions at, at the local Barnes and Noble, I kept seeing this gorgeous case and thinking like, I need, I need to watch this one again. And so I did, uh, I watched it again a couple of years ago and well, Fell in love with it in a way that I certainly you know, had a relationship that I certainly don't remember having with it as a, as a kid. Mm-hmm. Now I would classify it among my favorite films. Yeah. Going back a bit, we should we should post a, a scan of that Criterion cover on our on our Facebook page for our listeners because we, we, we're fawning yeah. over this gorgeous artwork. We want to share it with you guys. I'm, I'm sure that this, these won't be empty words. Go check out our Facebook page. As you were listening, I'm sure we've put it up there for you yeah. to find. Trust me, it's there. Yeah. It has to be there. If you don't see it, keep looking. We put, we posted it for sure. But no, yeah, the, 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 this was a really fun pairing of films. I thought Okja and the Black Stallion. There's a, uh, you know, there's the common thread of companionship and kind of that that idea that nobody could connect with a with a wild animal the way a child could. You know, there's that raw innocence, not yet tainted by the hands of the industrial human world. But obviously, they went in incredibly different directions. Okja, which I would not say Okja is a bad movie, but it's a very weird movie, which I guess you could kind of expect from Bong Joon-ho. It's it's a very, very strange movie. But The Black Stallion was was much more pensive and introspective and quiet and somehow all those things and not boring. Very, very engaging movie. Yeah, I think that's a key thing to say because – you know, boring is obviously subjective and, you know, getting into some of the art house films, there's sort of an objective layer of boring, right? Where maybe you can find interest in it, but the average, you know, going back to that average popcorn movie girl, when she's going to the movies, you know, <laughs> I think <laughs> you you can sort of guess what movies she's going to find boring. And I just yeah. don't think this is one of them. I can't really, I mean, I'm sure there's people out there who find this movie boring. There's, you know, every type of person exists. But 
I think for the most part, your average film goer can't find this film boring. It's too reined in. Yeah. Which is one of its extraordinary achievements. Yeah. It, it's crazy for how for how many stretches of silence there are. It never once felt to me like it dragged. If anything, when the Italian fisherman showed up to rescue him from the island, I thought, "Wow, rescue already!" Like I, I was ready for another hour on that yeah. island. And it's yeah, they 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 don't waste time in this movie, which is that's an achievement yeah. to itself to not waste time and yet to not feel like you're in a hurry either. Right. Well, what I would say in terms of our you know our. our post-review question where we talk about who this movie is for. I think, well, I, I think this is an, an easy recommendation. I mean, you might get people skeptical. They might say, uh, you know, a horse movie, a kid's movie or something. And <laughs> But I think it's an easy recommendation in terms of it's not like Oakjaw where it might jar with people's sensibilities. I think this is easy to recommend. But I think this movie is, as far as who it will appeal to, I think film students, I think if you want to learn about movie making, watch this movie and just think about pacing. Think about using shortcuts and ellipses and cliche and tropes in a way that is emotionally resonant and visually splendid. Mm-hmm. I think you could just watch this movie again and again and take more and more filmmaking lessons from it. And also, you know, I think if you're a person that enjoys uh, something, you know, like we said, contemplative and and beautiful. You know, I mean, there are stretches of this film that are are, are almost fantasia, just music and images. Yeah, contained within this story. It's it's the kind of film that you watch, and as you're watching it, just look inwards and just think about how it's making you feel. Like the 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 thoughts and emotions and feelings you're getting as you watch it. Just pay close attention to that because. It's intentional. It's the the movie elicits a very specific response from me, and yeah, and yeah, as Bo says, to those interested in film and and storytelling, pay attention to how it makes you feel, and also pay attention to how it makes you feel what you feel, because yeah, it really is just yeah. a, a love letter to the craft, and it's there's there's a lot happening on screen that you can dissect and examine and all the pieces are there. I mean, from literally all angles, considering the music or the light, this film goes through like every type of light. There are indoor shots, there are shots on a ship, there are shots on this island, there are shots with fire, there are shots at a horse track, there are shots mm-hmm. at night. If you want to just dive into the the cinematography of the thing, there's plenty there also. And certainly, and obviously, uh, this is a film that if you've – at least I imagine. I, I, I've never actually – I don't ride <laughs> horses. I never have. But I think that anyone who has a connection to horses, who loves animals and horses in particular, I can't imagine this not being a, a moving film. Yeah, agreed. Well, this is a movie you can find on Criterion Blu-ray. Uh, Amazon Prime has it available to stream as well in case you want to see it. I highly recommend checking it out. If you have to choose between this or Oakjaw, watch this one first. I'll say that much. Yeah, good pick, Bo. Good response film to Oakjaw. Once again, you are gracious in your in your your response films. Although I'm I'm sure there's, <laughs> I'm sure you'd have a hard time assigning me a bad Criterion film, even if you wanted to. But I'm sure you could find one that would push my buttons. Well, challenge accepted. Well, you know, let's. Yeah, we're just gonna we'll leave that as a 
you know, we'll see what right, happens. We'll, we'll save this. We'll play back this audio recording at the inevitable episode <laughs> a few few weeks or months from now when he rubs my nose in this. But uh, <laughs> yeah, thanks everybody for stopping by. This was a really fun episode. Um, we'll we'll update you guys in a week with our picks for the following episode, uh, so you guys can follow along and watch it ahead of time and, and keep up with us and. Uh, I, uh, uh, goodbye. <laughs> I really gotta think of a better sign off. And remember, if it's, if it's streaming, you might as well be kicking. <laughs>